Welcome to Rex Factor! This week, Susan Doran, Elizabeth's Suitors. With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello! Hello. And welcome to Rex Factor, reviewing all the Queen and Prince Consorts of England, from Elspeth to Prince Philip. Uh, now, chronologically, we are up to Elizabeth I, but of course, famously, Elizabeth I never married, so doesn't have a consort for us to review. But the question of Elizabeth's marriage was a vital part of her reign, and there were various men who tried to be the one. So we thought it'd be interesting to look at that in more detail. So while we don't have a consort to review, we're going to have a little look at some of the men who might have been consort to Elizabeth I. And to find out more about that, we're going to speak to the historian Professor Susan Doran to learn more about those men and why Elizabeth never married. So we are very excited to be joined on the podcast today by the author and historian Professor Susan Doran. Susan, thank you very much for joining us on the Rex Factor podcast. Real pleasure. Uh, first of all, would you mind introducing yourself to the listeners in terms of who you are and what you do and specialise in? Right. Well, I'm a historian who's attached to Jesus College, University of Oxford. I'm the senior research fellow there, but I teach for a lot of other colleges, undergraduate and postgraduate. And my interest up to now has been the Tudors, but I've been seduced into the early Stuarts. <laughs> and my latest book is called Regime Change. Uh, from Elizabeth I to James I. And hopefully, if OUP get down to it, it'll be out <laughs> shortly. Mm-hmm. That's oh, right in the sweet spot of uh, where we are. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We seem to have missed the marketing opportunity uh, since the beginning <laughs> of uh, the book starts with the Elizabeth I death and then it moves on to the coronation of James. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Um, so the reason that um, we're really looking forward to talking to you today is specifically about Elizabeth I's uh, suitors, because although uh, we're doing the consorts uh, of England in this series, and Elizabeth famously never marries and never has a consort, but there are various uh, men who, well, whether they got close or not, I guess is what we're going to talk about, but various men who potentially could have uh, become Elizabeth's consorts. I think it's really interesting to explore that. Um, and I was saying just before we started recording and while Ali was switching his <laughs> all his systems on and off, um, that it's really nice for me doing this because when I was doing my A-levels, the first sort of proper bit of history research I ever did was on Elizabeth's suitors and it was using your book because obviously you literally wrote the book on this question. <laughs> so it's probably quite an important stepping stone towards me doing a podcast on the Kings and Queens of England. So thank you for your role in the creation of the Rex Factor podcast. Oh, man. Yeah, so thank you very much for your part in the uh, the Rex Factor history pages. You started Graham off on his um, on his adventures. <laughs> Good to hear. Uh, so we're going to sort of focus on, I guess, sort of three key areas, which I'll tell Ali about so that Ali knows when he can ask <laughs> the questions he really wants to ask. So particularly, we've got Robert Dudley, um, which I think is a name that yes. a lot of people are going to be thinking about. And we've got sort of the Habsburgs, so sort of Spanish imperial uh, options, and the French as well, who those seem to be sort of three main areas that um, potentially Elizabeth might have settled on someone. Um, but before we get on to them, I guess without skipping ahead to the end, there might be a lot of perceptions people have about Elizabeth and the marriage question. I thought it might be interesting just to do first. And 
One of those is, did she ever actually want to marry? Because she's famous as the Virgin Queen. Is this something that was always there and she never really wanted to marry anybody? Or actually, do you think she did and it just didn't happen? Well, I think she did. I think she wanted to marry Robert Dudley. I think she wanted to marry um, Francois, Duke of Anjou. Um, we don't know for certain, but she acted as if she wanted to marry them. And certainly observers thought in relation to Robert Dudley that she was in love with him. I mean, they, they saw a real intimacy developing between them. The problem, of course, was that he was already married. So the question was what to do about that. And some, uh, certainly the Spanish ambassador, even thought there might be a question of an annulment of his marriage to Amy. There were no children. Um, and it, it certainly the experience of Elizabeth and how she behaved at the time was that she wanted to marry Robert Dudley. And I might be jumping ahead here, Graham, but so if if um, what uh, what Mary what's his name Dudley's wife what's her name Graham Amy Robsart Amy Robsart okay Mary slips in for some reason uh, weren't in the picture she might have married him but. When she's not in the picture, she can't. So the whole thing strikes me as a tragedy. Like there's some, it's not this um, pious married to England thing, but actually like an, a love story that. Star cross lovers, yes. Yeah. I, I would agree with that. Uh, whether it would have worked out well is another matter. But <laughs> certainly um, the fates were against that marriage her and her intentions. I found it quite interesting re rereading your book how she does seem to state publicly several times that she's not inclined to marry but that you know she might do it if the nation demands so do you think is that just a little bit of rhetoric and diplomacy or is there any truth behind it like maybe she knows that she might need to marry but maybe she didn't actually really want to even if she intended to well i certainly think that's true about the diplomatic marriages uh, i think she knew that there was a lot of pressure on her in parliament and with her Privy Council, some courtiers, because of the problem of the succession, that she needed an heir of her own body. She was the last of the Tudors. And I think she, you know, she would rather not have married somebody just because he was going to be a kind of stud for her, her child. Uh, but on the other hand, she recognised that there might not be much, much choice because she couldn't present herself in the way that she tried to, which was as the nursing mother of the church, as the person who had the welfare of her people at heart. She couldn't keep that up if she didn't at least show a willingness mm. to settle the most pressing problem of the time, which was the succession. And there's a psychological question people sometimes have over whether she like maybe has a fear of marrying or of motherhood and people point to sort of obviously her mother Anne Boleyn being executed Catherine Parr and uh, dies in childbirth Elizabeth of York dies in childbirth her own sister Mary's experience of marriage isn't necessarily the most uh, positive one in terms of how it affects her queenship do you think any of that is sort of nagging away at her as well would be uh, we simply do not know I mean any woman of the Tudor period would be worried about dying in childbirth because the figures weren't great. Um, but there were examples that she had of, of pretty happy marriages. I mean, her cousins were both happily married 
um, or seemed to be happily married. Uh, her cousin, Catherine Carey, was married Francis North. They seemed to be devoted to each other and had an awful lot of children. So their sex life was obviously pretty healthy. And Elizabeth had that as, I suppose, a counter example of what a marriage could be. We just don't know, though. I mean, she, she's not somebody who writes confessions. She doesn't have a personal diary. These are not the sorts of things that are handed down to us. So, yeah, we have to take it uh, on board. We have to think whether it's likely and yes, um, certainly possible. Um, but as I say, that those kinds of considerations would have affected many people, even Mary, Queen Mary uh, herself, um, yet they still married. Yeah, I, I just, I can't get my head around the fact that she would, um, on the like she's balancing the um, the cost of no heir, which she knew firsthand from her father, all the troubles it caused him, versus the risk of a, a, a suitor taking over and all the religious upheaval. Maybe she's sort of... I get the sense that she waited so long that she's sort of throwing herself on the altar of trying to just keep it all calm rather than setting anything off again. She seems quite self-sacrificing that. So I wonder if, if that's an element of it. And it just it was it must have been absolutely impossible for her, I suppose, to fight off the the pressure from privy councillors when you've got politicians telling you to give birth as well. <laughs> Incredible. I think it's even worse than no air because the air that by birth was most likely to be sitting on the throne, were it not for other factors, was Mary Queen of Scots, and that was the one Elizabeth would have favoured. However, of course, uh, the majority of Protestants were horrified, especially as time went by, at the thought of Mary Queen of Scots becoming the next Queen of England. She might be like the first Queen Mary and persecute Protestants. So uh, there was the succession problem was was more than that there was no heir and that might be a um, a, a new Wars of the Roses, uh, but it was also that there was Mary Queen of Scots of, of who uh, yeah. was had the strongest claim unquestionably, even though there were other legal reasons against her as well as religious ones. And then of course there was the possibility of international interventions into. Uh, there's the succession dispute, which would undoubtedly arise mm. on, on her death if she didn't marry and have a child. And yet, on the other hand, of course, she might not actually be able to produce a child. She might die in childbirth. She might not get on with her husband, as we know that happened to Mary Queen of Scots and and uh, Henry Lord Darnley. I mean, <laughs> all those kinds of mm. personal and political issues were such that it's not really surprising that she found it extremely difficult to make a decision. Mm. I, I thought, fell straight into the trap of, of Henry the, Henry VIII, um, <laughs> thinking, well, she could have just got married and had an heir. I just immediately assuming it would be a boy and everything would be fine. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's so much more complicated. Yeah, yeah, I'm afraid so. By that time, however, had it been a girl, I think that wouldn't have mattered quite as yeah. much as it did yeah. for Henry VIII. And how complicated is it for Elizabeth because of the religious question that she's this sort of, it's not obviously not the only Protestant monarch in Europe, but the other major powers are Catholic, and that's where you traditionally be looking for a, an alliance of someone at her level. So, how much does that limit her options? 
I don't think it limits her options when she's considering a foreign match. Uh, we think of own Protestants only being able to marry Protestants and Catholics only being a, able to marry Catholics. But uh, it was much more fluid than that. It was fluid, uh, both in terms of biblical injunctions, whether intermarriage between people of different faiths could actually happen. It was fluid in terms of what was going on. Um, monarchs, sometimes it didn't work out well, but monarchs were marrying people who were not of the same faith. So from that point of view, yes, she could consider a marriage. It was the terms in which a Catholic husband could come to England that proved the falling block, because Elizabeth's approach was they can practice their religion in private, and that means totally private, which means pretty much not at all if you're a Catholic. Um, and of course, the Catholics who were considering being Elizabeth's consort wanted to have a full public chapel style religion, form of worship. So that that was a far too dangerous a way of Elizabeth considering um, the possibilities of an intermarriage and interfaith. And you know, later on, of course, you're doing consorts. There were Catholic consorts of of two um, early Stuart kings. One was um, Anne of Denmark, who was entirely private, and there was no problem at all. And then the other one, of course, was Henrietta Maria, who had a, a Catholic household, a Catholic chapel, and that did create problems. So with hindsight, we can say, well, actually, Elizabeth was quite right in rejecting the terms that uh, the Archduke Charles of Austria or Henry, Duke of Anjou, tried to impose on her that there was had to be the public worship um, of their faith if they came to England as consorts. Mr. Robert Dudley. Oh, yeah. For anyone who doesn't know so much about him, could you just give a quick introduction of who Robert Dudley is and how he and Elizabeth know each other? Yes. Robert Dudley was in some ways fortunate in his heritage and in other ways very unfortunate because both his father and his grandfather had been royal servants, but both of them had been beheaded. <laughs> um, the father of Robert Dudley... Um, was someone who we know as the Duke of Northumberland. He had tried to put Lady Jane Grey and his son, Guildford Dudley, on the throne. And of course, Mary was successful in preventing uh, Jane from from being crowned and, uh, and uh, Northumberland was executed. So Robert Dudley was obviously... Of, of stock that had been uh, royal servants. Um, he had noble lineage. He, he could trace his uh, family way back to the uh, Dukes of Warwick and his own emblem was the bear and ragged staff, um, the name of some pubs today, uh, all of which drew attention to the fact that he did have um, noble antecedents. But at the same time, he was distrusted uh, because of the, particularly his father um, and his attempts to deny, as it were, the Tudor line as had, had been laid down by, by Henry VIII. 
He was a friend of Edward VI. We don't know if Elizabeth met him during Edward VI's reign. Probably towards the end of, of Mary's reign, um, Robert Dudley, who had actually it started off in prison at the beginning of Mary's reign, but had been released and indeed had joined her, uh, her retinue that went out to uh, the Netherlands to, to fight against France. So he was now seen as someone who was loyal to Queen Mary. But towards the end of Mary's reign, he was probably one of the figures who regularly came to Hatfield where Elizabeth was living. We don't know for certain. There wasn't a visitor's book, so he didn't sign in. But on the other hand, at the beginning of Elizabeth's name and uh, reign, uh, his name is recognized as someone who was close to Elizabeth. So that's pretty much all we know about him. By that time, of course, he was married. He married, he came from Norfolk. He married a Norfolk gentlewoman. She certainly didn't have any noble blood in, in her veins, um, and they had no children. He brought her to Oxfordshire, and she was living uh, in Cumnor at the time when Elizabeth, Elizabeth came to the throne. She was not brought to court, but the most male courtiers did not have their wives at court. It was, it was rare unless their wives were in Elizabeth's privy chamber. So that in itself was not, you know, ultra unusual. But of course, as his relationship with Elizabeth built up, and one of the reasons why it built up was that he became her master of the horse. Now, again, this is not so strange because members of his family had held a position, master of the horse. So in some ways it, it was inherited from them. But, you know, he is with her hunting. He's lifting her up on his, on her horse. There's an intimacy, physical and um, companionable, that develops between them. And it's at that time that um, the wife becomes a bit of an issue. Do we know how... Or what do you think, I suppose, is really the question, how far their relationship went? Like, were they actually lovers or is it always had to be kept at a certain level unless they became married? Uh, I'm pretty sure they weren't lovers. I can't, you know, I can't be 100% certain of that. Uh, but Elizabeth was very rarely on her own. And although later on there were rumours, and indeed at the time there were rumours that there were illegitimate children, they weren't from people who would be in the know. They were for common folk for the most part, or from people who had a particular political or religious act to grind. My guess is that they were not lovers. You know, some of the, some people claim to be their illegitimate children. Uh, uh, I think this is 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 not not strong. Of course, we didn't have DNA then to test, but my guess is that they they were physical in in touching, possibly even kissing, uh, but not not a full sexual relationship. I think that's most unlikely. And do you think that matters in terms of how we'd assess Elizabeth and Dudley and her reign, or? Like, would it change your assessment of her if you knew that answer one it way or the other? It would change it for me because I always see Elizabeth as very cautious, very circumspect, 
aspect, uh, you know, putting her head before her heart. And that would really change <laughs> if she risked the pregnancy uh, and risk being labeled uh, like her mother. Uh, mm. That, I think, really would change my view of Elizabeth. So you said at the start that you thought she wanted to marry Robert Dudley. Would he have been a viable choice? So what did you said about there's a suspicion of him because of his family heritage, but also maybe him as a person as well. He wasn't necessarily liked by everybody. So what did other people think about Dudley in terms of that possible role? Well, in, at the earliest part of um, their relationship, I mean, 1559, 1560, there were a lot of people who did not like the thought. Amongst them were uh, William Cecil, her secretary, um, who was her closest advisor. And there were others too. There were her Howard relations, Duke of Norfolk, had no truck with, with Dudley at this point. Earl of Sussex, who admittedly was in Ireland, um, he too did not um, think well of Dudley and certainly later on was to think even more ill of Dudley. So there's very few people that come out. I mean, they can't, of course, and say, well, we support marriage because <laughs> of the circumstances, but there doesn't really seem to be a lot of backing for a Dudley marriage very early on. Like, is that just personal or is that a problem that would have been there for any sort of English suitor with whoever it had been would have been a rival in terms of patronage and all this sort of stuff or was it Dudley as a man that I think it's both I think there is always a problem when um a king a monarch it doesn't have to be a queen what marries within um within England and we saw this if you've been looking at it earlier with with Edward the fourth when he marries Elizabeth Waterville, you know, there's a, I mean, he almost loses his throne just on that. But I mean, it's linked to other things as well. So, yes, I think there are strong problems. I mean, even Anne Boleyn, you know, when she was queen, her Boleyn relatives mm -hmm. came into court. They had positions of much more greater importance. That would happen with the Dudleys. Um, he had sisters who were married to noblemen. They would all have been, as it were, shooed in to more important positions. And there were others who did not like the thought of that. On the other hand, you know, the personal side is also important. I think that a lot of people did not trust him. Quite why, we don't know. It could be because just because of his father. We just don't know what how these people come across. I mean, to me, he comes across <clears throat> a smarmy, but, you know, I don't know. Mm -hmm. <laughs> he might have been just charming. Uh, he certainly had a good sense of humour. He charmed the Queen, and you can imagine that that would raise the hackles of of some people at the court. And Cecil, is he the key person, really? Like, if he doesn't want Elizabeth to marry somebody, if he doesn't want Dudley, is that kind of the crucial stumbling block? Or could she have... We'll talk about Amy Robsart in a second, but if she hadn't had that and Dudley was available, could she have just gone ahead with it, or did she need those people to support her? She would have had to persuade them, I think, in order to, to be secure on the throne. We have to remember... In 1558 to 1560, you know, Elizabeth's position on the throne, the sense of her being legitimate to sit on the throne, is not strong. Um, so 
Catholics could take advantage of that. Um, and she needed, therefore, to have a strong support group behind her. Now, it's quite possible that because of their dislike of Catholics being greater than their dislike of Dudley, uh, people like Cecil, people like um, possibly Norfolk would, would have come on board. Uh, and Dudley might have been able to persuade them. He was a persuasive character. Um, and he might have, you know, offered them things. Uh, but he was also trying to offer the Spanish uh, a bit later on uh, some tempting um, diplomatic possibilities that would bring their, their support uh, on board. It's difficult to say. I think there is a possibility that it could have gone ahead, but I would give it a sort of 60% possibility mm. rather than a 90%. So he's, he's sort of selling favours before it's happened to the Spanish, counting as chickens. Yeah. yeah, he says to the Spanish, um, look, if you support my marriage, I will support there being a representative from England to go to the, to the Council of Trent. So, you know, these kinds of possibilities are aired. Is that usual or should he be plummeting in my estimation as he currently is? <laughs> <laughs> well, you'll have to decide. <laughs> okay, I, I agree, he's smarmy. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's one way of looking at him, yes. I guess that thing you could see the different how Elizabeth maybe is more attracted to that slightly roguish charm, whereas oh. a Cecil... That's, I mm. guess, exactly the kind of thing that he'd expect <laughs> Tutley to do. Yeah, and he'd be touching, wouldn't he, as a sort of kindly guardian or something? Absolutely. Yes, we must remember, though, that he isn't the figure that appears in Kapoor's film Elizabeth, where he looks as if he's about 90 years old, you know, oh. Richard Attenborough. He is actually, you know, a middle-aged man at this point. <laughs> so yeah. not too aged an uncle. But I think there is that avuncular figure that is is there. He's worked for Elizabeth. This is Cecil. He's worked for Elizabeth right the way through um mary's years and um he he knows her well uh so we've got 60 percent chance for robert dudley um if they're in a position to marry and as ali was saying technically the position uh, that potential does come about when dudley's no longer married but uh the manner by which he's no longer married is the problem because his wife amy robsart is found dead at the bottom of a staircase so i guess the first question is what happened to Amy Robsart? Did she fall? Was she pushed or something else? Or did she commit suicide? Mm. Uh, I mean, a lot of people think that she was murdered. Um, then there's disagreement about who murdered her. Was it somebody who wanted the marriage or was it somebody who sought to discredit um, Dudley and, and and therefore contrived at the, at the murder? Others think that it was an accident uh some there was one supposition a while back which i think has been discredited that she had breast cancer and her bones crumbled and so she sort of fell down the stairs because of that and then there's my own supposition which is based on no more evidence than any of the others uh, that she possibly committed suicide and my supposition is that she was seems to have been very unhappy she sent her servants away 
on that particular day. Um, it was a day close to the Queen's birthday, which she might have, you know, known that that her husband was there and celebrating with with the Queen. Um, so I think that it's quite possible. Though, of course, you know, I have no more evidence, as I said, than anyone else, that she fell down a longer um, staircase because the staircase, that what was a bit worrying about it being an accident, was there were only about six six steps. I mean, obviously, we don't know how deep they were, but it's quite possible that she was then moved um, and that it was all sort of hidden that she committed suicide because that in itself um, would have brought discredit to the Queen as well as as uh, the notion of murder, which ultimately was was not the official verdict, but most people believed, I think, that there had been something that was close to murder, um, you know, a push, if not necessarily uh, throwing her down the stairs, and that, that Dudley was behind it. So Elizabeth obviously could not appear to be an accessory to murder. And when she heard about all this from uh, emissaries from the French court, I think she unhappily, I mean, judging by descriptions that she made, that were made of her, um, that she decided against uh, against the marriage at that point. But do you think that was it 100% couldn't happen at that point because it feels surprising it feels like Dudley still in the frame for quite a while after that maybe Elizabeth would never have considered it but it feels like Dudley at least still feels like he's got a shot for quite a long time oh I'm sure you're right I think he did think he had a shot uh and he thought that you know after all women change their minds don't they so I'm sure the queen would change her mind uh so I I do think that um I think Elizabeth had hardened her heart to it and I don't think she was going to open it. I think once she decided um, that was that was the way she she thought it could be, you know, it was going to be bounded. He was going to be her most intimate servant. They would he wouldn't marry, she thought and hoped. Uh, and uh, but as far as he was concerned, for a very long time afterwards, he's playing the uh won't you marry me card um and and this is seen in some courtly festivals in portraits that he commissioned um and but it doesn't happen and eventually he despairs and he wants a child of his own he wants an heir and when he does marry significantly he marries secretly and it's only discovered really when um it's leaked to the queen who was terribly distressed by it mm. um and that really was the end of the i mean their relationship continued of course but that warmth does seem pretty much to have evaporated i mean she's mm. again when he dies um she is extreme i mean you know beyond upset and she keeps his last letter uh, as as it's put in uh, some kind of drawer very close to her in her bedchamber. So there's no question that she she felt very strongly for for Dudley and um, and also felt betrayed, probably unfairly, when he married someone else. And how old is she at that point when he um, 
when he sort of decides that that it's not going to happen and marry someone else. She's about 45. Oh, okay. It's the married to the nation bit from there. Yeah, I mean, at that point when he marries, Elizabeth is entertaining entertaining the possibility of marrying someone else. So in the sense that she she shouldn't really have felt quite so betrayed. Though I Mm. think she could say to herself, mine is for the nation. (laughs) (laughs) Yours is not. Um, (laughs) So that brings us on to our third um, marriage, uh, uh, which is a serious set of marriage considerations. And that's with the French Duke of Anjou. But before then, of course, we have the the possibility of her marrying into the Habsburg family. That's something which, again, I think a lot of people would be surprised at. It's that like one of the first people that throws their hat into the ring to marry her is Philip II of Spain, i.e. her former brother-in-law, the man who married Mary I, and the man who will later send an armada against Elizabeth. And yet, early doors, he's trying to marry her. So what's what's going on there? Why is Philip marrying, wanting to marry Elizabeth of all people? Well, I think the first point is that he doesn't actually want to marry her. He thinks <laughs> it's, it's the only way to bring England, or not to bring them back into the fold, to keep them in the Catholic fold after, after Mary has returned England to Rome. Everyone knows Elizabeth is a heretic from Catholic point of view. Uh, Protestant from uh, from the Protestant point of view, and that she intends to to break with Rome and to introduce Protestant worship into England, and that's his way of trying to stop it. Um, Elizabeth has makes it very clear pretty early on that this is not a possibility, not least for the very reason you've you've mentioned that he's her brother-in-law, and of course Henry VIII um, rejected. Catherine um, of Aragon, the marriage with Catherine of Aragon on the grounds that she was his sister-in-law. So Elizabeth would, you know, could, couldn't possibly marry <laughs> Philip. And she makes that very clear, even though she needs the Habsburg alliance. And so what she does is leave open the possibility that she might marry the Austrian branch into the Austrian branch of the Habsburg family. Philip II is a Habsburg, but he's a Spanish Habsburg. Um, there were Aus- the Holy Roman Emperor was the Austrian Habsburg. And so she is when there is a, a, a proposal of marriage from that side of the family, she is less brusque in, in rejecting it. And it's left open and possibly, and if you come and visit me um, and we like each other, uh, but it doesn't, it doesn't happen in 1560 when all this is being discussed but it does happen about five years later that the the Habsburgs reopen the possibility of a marriage with Elizabeth the Austrian Habsburgs and Elizabeth very much wants to keep the Habsburgs on side there has been a blip in their relationship in part because of religion but also because um the the Netherlands, which is ruled by Philip II of Spain, there is the regent in the Netherlands imposes an embargo on English cloth. And that is very tough for England because it's their main export, woolen cloth. The place that it goes to is Antwerp. And so the English have to scurry around trying to find somewhere else on the continent where they can sell their cloth. This 
this sort of quarrel does end in 1565, but there's a desire on both sides to reinvigorate the Habsburg alliance because their commercial interests are so tied up with each other that it would be pretty disastrous, it seemed, if, if there was to be any kind of breakage. And I think that's one reason, it's not the only reason, why Elizabeth is, is thinking and uh, that perhaps these negotiations might should go ahead and might actually lead somewhere and it might be possible for this marriage to take place. So this is Archduke Charles of Austria. So I was having a little look at the family trees earlier. So is, is he a cousin of Philip? Yes. That's when he's a cousin. So is that, a, and is Philip, would he be sort of involved in some of the machinations behind this diplomacy? Is that something no, that No, it comes as, well, as a bit of a surprise to him mm. uh, when it actually starts going ahead. Um and he's not that keen on it, but it, you know, still within the patriarchal mindset, the idea is that if Elizabeth marries a Catholic, either she will convert or her children will become Catholics. So he, he yeah. is, his ambassador supports it, um, and you know, is is partly an intermediary between the Austrians and and the English court, the the Austrian emperor who is now the brother of Charles, he sends um, his own emissaries to envoys to England to try and tie up this particular, this marriage. That the Austrians were not seen as being fanatically anti-Protestant in the way that the Spanish were. Mm. So in 1555, the Holy Roman Emperor had been forced to make a deal with the Lutheran princes in Germany that he wouldn't attack them and that they would have the right within Germany to have their own churches. So that seemed to augur well <laughs> from the English point of view about the attitude of Charles to, um, to Protestantism and that he wouldn't be too demanding. But still that we'd convert back to Catholicism on their, with their children. Th that's the hope. I mean, the hope, whatever, you see, at this time it's recognised, whatever the king is or queen is, that's going to be the religion of the country. And so if there's ways that a Catholic consort could influence the tutors of the children, and this goes on, of course, later on uh, with mm -hmm. the Stuarts, um, then that could, be, that could be significant for the future religious direction of the country. God, high price. And I found it quite interesting, given that William Sessa is one of the architects of the Elizabethan religious settlement and Protestantism, but he actually is one of the ones who's in favour of this yes. marriage. So is that really just, again, from that same kind of pragmatic perspective of it's not as bad as Spain, we need somebody, this is about as good as we can expect at the moment? Yes, I mean, I think he has the wrong idea about uh, the Archduke. I think he thinks he's much more moderate in religion uh, than he really is. Um, and he thinks, well, he's certainly better than Dudley. I mean, we don't want Dudley to emerge again as a possible candidate. He also thinks that the French are unsuitable. Uh, the, the French candidate that is put before Elizabeth is a mere child. So that's not going to solve the succession question. And we have to remember Elizabeth is now is in her 30s, mid-30s. She's got to get on with it if there's going to be... Uh, an heir of her own body. And if there isn't an heir of her own body, then there is the real danger 
that Mary Queen of Scots um, might well uh, be, you know, considered suitable as the next the next heir. She's married in, in 1566. She has a son. All these things are playing out um, in, in Cecil's mind. And I think he thinks, look, we'll be able to control uh, Charles if we get the right terms. We'll be able to prevent Catholicism seeping into England. Uh, and so he goes for it. So if, if they can get the right terms, but I guess that's a sticking point, like you were saying at the start, that all these demands about being able to worship publicly is that the main thing or are there other things that kind of get in the way of this matter well they there are other things for example um uh it's said that um charles would not um be able to have any patronage in england that he would have to pay for his own household which i think the austrians thought was a bit you know <laughs> was a bit rich mm. uh, and uh but really the sticking sticking point was religion because elizabeth made it very clear uh, as time went by that he could not have a public mass and by public mass they don't mean in the in st paul's cathedral <laughs> i mean in his own chapel uh where those people who were not necessarily even of his own household could attend that mass um and there was enough problems uh it, from the Spanish ambassador having their own masses. Occasionally, they had, uh, they were, um, the, were, the sort of police went in and, I mean, you know, what would be equivalent to the police <laughs> went in and, and, and would round up Protestants who were attending. So that, you could, that would be disastrous if that happened at the royal level. So all these kinds of considerations made Elizabeth, um, decide that this really was was not worth it this was and she'd already got over a hump she'd um had a parliament 1566 where they had all of the mps and the house of lords had had petitioned her to marry and or name an heir and she had promised to go ahead and think in terms of a marriage and that they shouldn't touch on the succession but that she had listened to them about marriage and then she sent off the earl of sussex to austria to do the final negotiations for this for this marriage and when he came back empty-handed she felt well i'm not going to call a parliament for a bit if i can possibly get away with it um and clearly this is the right decision for the country as well as for me and is it one where there's would there have been sort of general agreement across the board that like these terms are wrong? So like Cecil as well, who've been going for it, it's not that there was a sense that... Or maybe no, there, there seems to be... I mean, the Earl of Sussex, who had come back from Ireland, he wants something. He's obviously humiliated. He felt he'd got <laughs> something of a deal. Um, and he wanted her to, to go ahead with it. Um, but really, uh, it was impossible. There were even sermons um, that were being preached about the impossibility of a mass um, being heard in England. So ev everything was against it. I and mean, it would be a hard, a hard one to sell. Mm. And Dudley was up to tricks as well, wasn't he, with this? He's, he's against oh, yes. yes, Dudley is clearly totally opposed to this marriage. 
because it might go ahead. Mm-hmm. Um, and then he dangles the, the possibility of a marriage between Elizabeth and the very young brother. I mean, very young brother, 18, 19 years younger than Elizabeth, um, as a possible marriage candidate, as a possible consul for the Queen, which at that time was was really not was not likely to appeal to Elizabeth. Do we know with I guess with um, Charles or any of the other candidates, like do we know what title? Um, a male consort for Elizabeth would have had because see Philip is technically co-king with Mary so would they have expected that or would they have been forced to accept something below that I think they would have allowed him to be called king but he would not have been crowned Hmm. Philip was not crowned Uh, so uh, the the action I mean you're quite right Philip presents himself as a co-king I think Elizabeth would have done her best to have um stuck to the terms of the marriage treaty which effectively uh depoliticized the consort um mm. mary allowed philip in some respects to have a, a greater title and a greater position than was envisaged in the marriage contract but i don't think elizabeth would have have permitted that had it gone ahead and of course that would have also been a source of contention between her and her husband that was a major source of contention between mary queen of scots and darnley mm. um you know he he wanted to act as a co-ruler and she basically said no mm. uh, quite rightly but it, of course it <laughs> had repercussions which were disastrous for her must feel like an extent to which, remember when we did, because um, we did the Scottish monarchs in our second series, so we've sort of done the Elizabeth and Mary thing from both angles, but <clears throat> an extent to which Mary uh, Elizabeth must have looked at Mary's experience and thought, well, see, mm, I, I think I, was, I got things right there, because look what happens when you don't follow these careful, pragmatic Same taste. Decisions. Yeah. Yes, I mean, it's all sort of happening in parallel. So how much learning there would have been done, certainly not in 1565, but probably more in 1567 um, when uh, Sussex comes back. And I I think you're right. I think that that picture <laughs> may very well have been before her. So when the Habsburg marriage doesn't happen, Dudley hasn't happened, even if he's still trying to make it so. In the 1570s, the view switches to France. So why why did France suddenly come into the picture? And I guess why hadn't they been in the picture earlier than this? Well, the key disadvantages of the French were, first of all, they too were Catholic, but they were fighting against Protestants in the French civil wars. So, you know, they did seem as if they might be rabid Catholics, uh, which obviously was not going to be suitable. Uh, And the second was that the princes who were not married were very young, uh, considerably younger. So why on earth did anyone think in terms of a French marriage? It was because it was the Protestants in France who put it forward, first of all. And this was with Henry, not Francis, Henry, Duke of Anjou, who was the the younger brother of Charles um, and Francis, was the youngest brother. Um, And they put it forward because at that time there there was thinking that a series of marriages between Protestants and Catholics at the very highest level um, could resolve the problem in France. 
uh, and one of the marriages that was to be part of this design, which in fact um, Catherine de Medici supported, was to have her daughter, Margaret, married to the head of the Huguenots, the uh, Henry of Navarre, uh, one of the heads of the Huguenots, um, Henry of Navarre. And we, I, I don't know if your listeners know, but that did not end up well, that marriage ended with the massacre of San Bartholomew. So this was not necessarily the best plan, but part of the plan was to have Elizabeth married to Henry of Anjou. And from the English point of view, this did have actually quite a bit going for it. First of all, it would create a, an alliance with France. And from the late 1560s, right the way through the 15, early 1570s, Elizabeth's relationship, England's relationship with Spain has gone into crisis mode. There are lots of reasons for this, but the Spaniards by 1570 are beginning to think in terms of invasion or supporting a Catholic rebellion. I mean, it's, it's bad news. And so Elizabeth needs a French alliance to provide some form of defense. The last thing she wants is for the, the French to join up with the Spaniards and have a crusade against her. So politically, that is an advantage. There is another political advantage that starts to emerge around 1572, um, which is that there is a revolt in the Netherlands, which is getting stronger and the French might support it because they claimed some of the territories in the Spanish Netherlands. Okay. So Elizabeth does wants to prevent that happening and a marriage perhaps into the French royal family will give her some um, authority uh, to, 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 to make her position felt. On Another level, the weakness of the of the of the French candidacy on the basis of the princes being so young now seemed an advantage because Elizabeth, they were now old enough to sire children. But on the other hand, Elizabeth, as the older woman, could be the upper hand in the relationship, and there wouldn't mm. be a danger that mm. they would try and seize control. And it's for those sorts of rather complicated reasons that there are a series of marriage negotiations that take place between, I would say, 1570, right the way through to 1578, and even going on to 1581. The first set was with Henry of Anjou, and that came to an end because Henry basically had no wish at all to marry Elizabeth. Um, she was too old, and he certainly wasn't going to marry a heretic. I mean, he'd been pushed into a position uh, where he con would consider it, but deep down there was never any chance that he would agree. So he no not only demanded a public mass, he wanted a mass with bells and incense and probably processions through the street, came to an end uh, in 1572. And Elizabeth actually got what she wanted out of it, which was a defensive treaty with, with France. But after the massacre of San Bartholomew, 
Elizabeth did not want that treaty to go down the tube. Uh, and the royal family was seen as being behind the massacre. So how could she keep a relationship going with them? And one way was to consider diplomatically an, a, a marriage with the youngest son, um, who was, as I said, Francis Duke of Alençon, who becomes Duke of Anjou. And that sort of is on and off pretty much from 1572 to 1576. Both sides know it's not serious. Both sides know that this is just a way of keeping intact the Anglo-French alliance during this horrible time of civil war in France. However, in 1578, there is a renewal of the alliance and then it becomes serious. And it's for a different reason. It's because the Duke of Anjou now wants to go and fight on behalf of the rebels in the Netherlands, most of whom, by the way, are Protestant, but not all. Some of them are Catholic at this point in 1578. And the English are really scared that the French will be successful and that part of the Netherlands will come into French hands. And the French, we have to remember, is still the old enemy. Mm. You know, the memories of the Hundred Years' War have not gone. Mm. Um, and despite more problematic relations with Spain, there is still the memory of the old, what was called the Burgundian Alliance. And the Burgundians were the those people who had ruled, the, the dynasty that had ruled the Netherlands happened now to be the Spaniards. So what was one to do in this very difficult situation? And Burley, I think, there's some question it, and Sussex argue that Elizabeth should think in terms of a marriage to the Duke of Anjou. That will be the basis for a dynastic alliance. Without that marriage, there can be no alliance. And so that's what Elizabeth does. And of course, Anjou is delighted at the prospect um, uh, of a marriage to a queen and also one who might sponsor him in his adventure taking up the arms on behalf of the rebels against Spain. And so he does come to England. And he comes in disguise, though a lot of people know this is the Duke of Anjou. And by all accounts, he charmed Elizabeth. Whether we have another Dudley on our hands <laughs> or not, he certainly was not as handsome. Look at portraits of him. Uh, you know, he's got a very prominent nose. Uh, he seems to be rather small. And she called him her little frog. And we wonder if he, she caught him that because his skin was very pockmarked. And so oh. he didn't have the smooth skin uh, of a Dudley. So he wasn't, he wasn't uh, beautiful by any stretch of the imagination, but he did seem to have a Gaelic charm and he did like dancing. And by all accounts, he charmed the queen and she was prepared to go ahead with the marriage. Whether part of the charm was that Elizabeth thought she could control him, we don't know, but I wouldn't be at all surprised. So that's when things hot up, because then it looks as if it's 
a possibility, even a probability. And all those against a Catholic marriage, all those who are anti-French, start writing, start preaching, start gossiping. And it becomes quite clear when it's discussed in the council that the majority are against this marriage. And Elizabeth has to decide what to do. And she writes to Anjou and says, I can't do it now. <laughs> Maybe in the future, but I certainly can't do it now. And it sort of dribbles on until 1581, when Anjou comes again to England. Partly he wants to marry the Queen again, and he wants that firm. But he also wants money from her, because he now is ready to go out and fight in the Netherlands. And... Um, Elizabeth, in a description by William Camden, her first biographer, does agree to marry him and take his ring. Um, and then again, it all blows up. And then she says, no, this, I, I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't mean it. <laughs> uh, and, and the marriage is off. And instead, she gives him support in terms of money and also a uh, a courtly escort to the Netherlands, where he is then invested with um, the dukedom of Brabant, thereby challenging the King of Spain's sovereignty in the Netherlands. And so Elizabeth is 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 supporting a really strong anti-Spanish act by the French. But what she can't get, and what she had hoped to get, was an alliance with the King of France who is now Henry, Henry III, um, and he refused point blank to, to, to give an alliance, partly on the grounds that she would not marry Anjou, partly on the grounds that he suspected, quite rightly, I think, that she wanted him to take the lead in a war against Spain uh, while she sat on the sidelines. So was that the closest she came to getting married? To Probably, yes. Yeah. Extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah. And it's interesting as well the fact that, say, we've sort of 1578, 1579, so she's her sort of mid-40s at this point. Mm. So Not about having children. So is that kind yeah. of completely gone? Are they, is there any pretense of that, or is it like now it's all about the alliance now? Well, there is a bit of a pretense, uh, because uh, William Cecil says, uh, on the basis, I think, that he in spoke to uh, maids of the chamber that she was still menstruating, that she would be capable of having a a child. But in fact, I mean, I, I suspect that the idea was that she wouldn't have a child, because it would be just too dangerous for a woman in her 40s to have a child, and then there would be problems. And of course, those against the marriage um, made a lot of that, that if Elizabeth died in childbirth, then Anjou would step in as King of England and, you know, that would be disastrous. So, yes, I, the succession issue has gone, I think, <laughs> by that point from a, a, any expectation that Elizabeth would deliver an heir of her own body. So in terms of him coming so close and it seems closer than anyone else is that just because of the practical element and needing that french alliance or do you think it is actually because he comes in person and charms her is it sort of similar i guess to like henry the eighth that he always felt like he needed to fall in love with the person he was marrying which weirdly is quite unusual <laughs> at the time do you think it's the same for elizabeth she needed that 
feeling. So, yes, I think she did. I think she needed to weigh him up. It's not just about whether he was good looking or not. I mean, I don't, I mean, he had mistresses. So obviously people did find him attractive. Um, so I think it was, it was more about would she be able to continue acting as monarch with him by her side? Would he? Um, and would they have fun together even? I, I think it's much more about that than, than uh, you know, would I want to bed him? I mean, it may have been even that that wasn't even on the table. You know, well, it would have to be because without that. Actually, she does say at one point that um, if later on he felt the need to annul the marriage, that would be possible. So it might be that they weren't even thinking of consummation. So because she always strikes me as such a powerful um strong leader is it at that point presumably she is so secure um that it is that she can afford that's one of the reasons she can afford to perhaps look at a, a marriage for love but so it's less of a as soon as she can't bear children then she's able to look at it with more of an, a, a discerning eye maybe just for love because yeah, I mean, I don't think there's any issue of love here. I think, I think what has come together is a political need, something that is is in the interests of the country, mm. as well as well. This might be quite fun. This, the, you mm. know, this, I'd quite enjoy it. Um, so that the, there is no personal antagonism towards this person. So I think those two things have oh. come together with the the Anjou match on the other hand she is despite her security on the throne um she can't afford to to allow such opposition to emerge amongst those people she relies on for support it's mm. i mean yeah again you know by now mary queen of scots has has been in england for 10 years but a lot of the people that Mary relied on um, turned against her when she married Bothwell. So uh, Elizabeth can't afford for that a Bothwell moment in in her life. Uh, so I think that she, that's why ultimately she decides that it it can't go ahead. I mean, there's a there is a description again. You know, we have to rely on on the author, but it it's that she just burst into tears when she made that decision and that she wasn't, when they told her, the Privy Councillors told her they would not back a marriage. She, you know, burst into tears, whether it was a frustration or personal unhappiness, we, we don't know. So she's not as powerful, you know, she doesn't, she, I don't think she ever feels that she is so powerful that she can ignore the, the sentiments of people that, surround her that give her advice in her council and in her court that's the best bit though when they when when they're they're so cool but don't realize it that <laughs> she doesn't realize that she's always been a favorite of mine and um it i think then it just means that she just did incredibly well to get get away with to it's just a balancing act she'd have married she'd have been in trouble and she managed to then not marry and stay out of trouble she was she seemed to be uh done for whichever way she turned and yet comes out of it firstly with the rex factor 
and <laughs> and smelling of roses. Yeah, I think that's true. Another thing, you know, is I think we're very aware how power can cut you off from public opinion. Mm. Um, I think possibly with Putin, you know, we we see how power can have such a corrosive force, and and almost cut you off from reality. That doesn't happen to Elizabeth. I think that's one of her great strengths as a monarch that she does actually never think, "I am so powerful, I can do what I want." Yeah, maybe that's where the married to the country bit makes more sense. That she sort of uh, she sort of was always thinking about what the country wanted rather than actually. Uh, I am the country. I, I am the country. Yeah, and I want to get. And she did want to get married, but it just never happened. So. There should be more films about it from that point of view. <laughs> well, I think so too. I think there's been far too much on this basis of, of the Virgin Queen, and she, yeah. you know, said right from the beginning she, you know, she wanted to live and die a virgin, which she may very well have said. But you know, there were times when she didn't want yeah. to live and die a virgin, and, and making the distinction between image and her own personal feelings is incredibly difficult to do. I do appreciate that. But I think sometimes people are taken in a bit by the image. Mm. Which is another skill of hers, I guess, the fact that she's able to, hundreds of years down the line, we're still uh, taking in that propaganda line. I guess that's sort of a final question on this then. And and it's interesting, I guess, like we've seen that, and we can see why, like you said, she broke down in tears, how it could have been frustration, that at certain times she wants to marry and they say, no, we don't want you to, and at other times she doesn't want to marry and their parliament's petitioning her too. So whatever she does, it mm. seems they then tell her the opposite. Um, but so how should, do you think we should judge her, her queenship on this basis? So we've been talking just there, Ali's been saying about how well she does in balancing it and never straying too far from um, what's sensible and right for the country. On the other hand, obviously, it does end the Tudor dynasty. And um, I think you said that you're sort of working at the moment on the that transition from Elizabeth to James. Is she lucky, the fact that Mary falls and you've got this Protestant successor that everyone can get behind? Or is it actually a reflection that she managed it all very well, that she could die without a child and that there isn't a problem? Mm. I think there's a bit of both, as always. <laughs> but I think she does help manage it. Because I think that those who would have been rival candidates are put in positions where they can't be rivals. So, for example, um, the Grey line, Catherine Grey, who has two sons, Elizabeth will never allow those sons to be anything other than bastards. Now, okay, she was a bastard and she still managed to sit on the throne, but it is a major it's a major obstacle for them. Similarly, uh, she doesn't allow um, the English Stuart, Arbella Stuart, who was born in England, is an English. She never allows, or she does allow her shortly to come to court, makes an assessment of her, sends her away from court and will not allow her to, in any way to marry, to build up any kind of power base that could, in, in effect, have um, an uh, adverse impact on James. I think she does what she can to make the way clear for James. She's not sure she trusts James. She will never say to James, you are my my mm-hmm. heir. But I think she, she makes it um, easier for him than, than sometimes she has been given credit for. Uh, allowing him to, to to get on the throne. But of course, the lucky is that 
Mary, Queen of Scots, not only had a son, uh, but also that he was brought up as a Protestant. And had her marriage gone well, that would not have happened. He could very well mm. have been a Catholic. And what would have happened then to England? Mm. Well, but would that be better? I never considered that because her son. I'm sorry, I, I realised we did the time, but I'm, I won't have this opportunity again. <laughs> um, doesn't that paint the whole um, Mary Queen of Scots thing in a different light? She has a Protestant son. She doesn't have a Protestant son. She has a Catholic son. He is actually baptised a Catholic, but when she is ousted from the throne, he yeah. is brought up by. Catholic by Protestants. I mean, it would, I mean, that really had a Mary uh, not been ousted, as, um, then we, who else would have been in line for the kingship? I mean, they, they say in 1603, there are something like 12 possible candidates, but they are, yeah, they're further removed from James. And James also had international backing and it had even more had he been Catholic. So we could have been Catholic. Yeah. It could have been a Catholic country. I, I can see why you've studied this period for your next <laughs> It's brilliant. <laughs> uh, yeah, not going too far down the counterfactual, but obviously if um, James had been a Catholic, would have been if Mary hadn't, everything hadn't gone wrong for Mary. And Mary is younger than Elizabeth. So if Mary hadn't lost That's everything, like, she might still have been queen when yeah. Elizabeth died. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> We're going down the road. <laughs> it's about, I, I think what's important about this is that we recognise the contingent element to history, that there isn't a kind of Protestant enfolding inevitability yeah. in history. That's really, I mean, that's the only uh, advantage of looking up the possible counterfactual. Mm. That's so true, yeah. It's so easy to look at it when you... you obviously, the Allies are going to win the Second World War. We all know this. this I'm so awful at, at looking at things through modern eyes. Well, that's uh, well, that's fascinating, and the whole question of Elizabeth and the marriage, I think, would be fascinating. I'm sure people have learned a lot from that. So, Susan, thank you very much for joining us uh, on the podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It's been fun. Um, is there anywhere if um, people want to sort of know more about you or to sort of follow you on are you on social media or anything like that for people to? I am on Twitter actually. I forgot what I'm called. I am on Twitter. Yes, this, um, but otherwise, I'm I'm not really. Uh, but I, people can always sort of Google mm. me, and then the faculty of Oxford, you know, history at Oxford will come mm. up, or Jesus College, and my emails there. So people get in contact with me all the time. So, so what's coming up for you? What's the what's the next project? Do you know, I'm not sure. I haven't decided yet. I've got my book has still needs all the all the things like indexing and proofreading to be done. Once that gets out of the way, I'll I'll give it more of a thought. I've been asked to do a book on the image of Elizabeth, but I don't really fancy it. I feel as if I've done that, been there. Uh, have I got anything new to say? I'm not sure. So I haven't decided. I haven't decided whether to go back to Elizabeth or whether to take the James story further on. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, exciting. Let us know. <laughs> we'll be <in> all, <laughs> okay. another one. Thanks so much for joining us. Bye. 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 So that was Professor Susan Dora on Elizabeth the First and her suitors. Do you know what I'm disappointed we didn't mention? Mm. 
Genghis Khan. No. Uh, Ivan the Terrible. Ivan the... T- I, see, do you know where I went between Genghis Khan and Ivan the Terrible? It was Vlad the Impaler. Yes. <laughs> They're all there, the bad guys, <laughs> lining up. Got the right one. I was thinking that, like, initially when I was thinking of putting the episode together, I was thinking we've got Ivan the Terrible. Um, there's a Swedish one, Eric of Sweden, mm. um, who's the only kind of Protestant foreign prince that ever realistically gets put forward. But then I was writing out and I thought, oh, we're going to have so many questions and so many things to talk about. I thought I'd just got to... I was going to ask that about Protestant suitor, but it popped out of my head. If she had to marry one of them, would you have had uh, would you have had Dudley for the love or uh, Francois Who for the... Who was the other uh, one? Uh, Francois. French fella. Alençon, the one at the end. Yeah. It's her little him. sort of her pet one at the end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Him. That would be nice. <laughs> just go up on like uh, retirement cruises. Give him his pocket money to go and invade the Netherlands. Yeah, and... yeah, yeah. Invade the Netherlands. Have a go on um, blooming uh, Duck Hunt or wherever it is they play on the ferry over there. <laughs> time out. Time cop. That was it. Time cop. Yeah. <laughs> Hard on the cross-channel ferry. <laughs> <laughs> Let us know what you thought about all of that. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can find us on Twitter and Instagram, where we are at Rex Factor Pod. Like Rex Factor Podcast Facebook page or email rexfactorpodcast at hotmail.com. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you can leave a review and subscribe on whatever podcast provider you use or donate monthly to join the Privy Council and get loads of bonus episodes at patreon.com forward slash rexfactor. Uh, and we have some new privily, privily. Hmm. we have some very privily councillors <laughs> and we have some new privy councillors to welcome to the fold Melissa Stevens Daniel Olson A.K. Beckwith Reva Olympian Comics Richard Evans Lauren Hill Evan Eberhardt Fraser Cameron Matthew O'Brien Kristen Hilland Emma Stone Blaze Matthews Susan Culverwell S. Blango, Paul Gent, Judy Harding, Melissa Banks, Stacey Boyles, The Lady Sabrina, Drew Lewis, Melanie Roy, Carla Bordrans, Rebecca Seekins, and finally, happy birthday from Matt for Zoe Thurman. Happy birthday, Zoe Thurman, but arise one and all, take your rightful place under Graham's left armpit. <laughs> That's a new location for her. <laughs> it's a bit cramped in here now, so uh, it's quite—it's not quite the thrones that <laughs> the first Privy Councillors had. <laughs> yeah, I mean, don't, I don't hate to think whether what next lot are going, but we'll try and free up some space. <laughs> and uh, apologies to uh, Zoe. I say Thurman. I suppose it could have been Terman, couldn't it? I don't know. I mean, the uh, I just guessed, but that was uh, back in November. That that was that birthday present. But just because we're working our way through <laughs> chronologically. Wow. Uh, it's taken us a little bit of a while to get there, but that just means that the birthdays continued for. I guess they six had months. the present though of the extra content. Exactly, and it's like oh, halfway through the year, bang, hit you with the big time appearing on the pod. <laughs> so that's all from us today hopefully you enjoyed uh, that interview uh next time we will be back reviewing an actual consort and we will actually finally be starting uh the stuart consorts in this stuart miniseries after doing philip ii and then this one on elizabeth so stuart's next time as we'll be doing the queen consort for james the first uh, of england six of scotland uh and of denmark look forward to it see you next time Cheers.